Hasbro Sports Network listeners, welcome to another episode of The Call Sheet. Kevin Smith with you. And this is a different kind of episode of The Call Sheet because we are now into playoff season. And that is exciting. Can't wait to talk about some playoffs, uh, talk about some coaching issues. We're actually going to be a little bit heavy on the coaching today in, in today's episode because there's just so much so much to talk about as far as that all goes. But again, we want to make sure we we touch on the playoffs. We'll do that in part two. But first, as always, this is episode 39. And so we'll look at a player who wore that number. And with apologies to all Pittsburgh Steelers fans who are listening, who may immediately assume that we're going to focus on Minka Fitzpatrick, or if we wanted to go back a little bit, fast Willie Parker. And I will say this about number 39, Willie Parker. He he was the touchdown scorer on one of my all-time favorite plays as a Pittsburgh Steeler fan, the 75-yard touchdown run he had in Super Bowl 40 to open the third quarter against the Seattle Seahawks on 34 Pike, which is just an old-school counter-gap play, great power run play. Uh, I can still see that, that play in my head. But I am not talking about any Pittsburgh Steelers here. Instead, we're going... We're going back to the 1970s to talk about the great Larry Zonka. Larry Zonka. For anybody who doesn't remember Larry Zonka, just listen to that name, Larry Zonka, and you tell me what position he played. And if you didn't say linebacker or fullback, uh, then clearly you were not alive in the 1970s, man. Larry Zonka might be the greatest name ever for a fullback. And in in this instance, uh, a fullback with a nose splattered across his face he kind of reminded me of a character from the old video game Punch Out, uh, the the old the old cartoon game with with, uh, with Glass Joe and and the Mike Tyson character. And I mean, I thought Larry Zaka would have been a great Punch Out character. He was a heck of a football player, five time Pro Bowler out of Syracuse. To this day, Larry Zaka remains the franchise leader in rushing yards for the Dolphins. He's he's one of the most recognizable figures from that seventeen and O. Dolphins team of 1972, which is the only perfect season in modern NFL history. I mean, the Dolphins went back to back. They won the Super Bowl in 72 and again in 73. And that made them just the second team to achieve that feat. Larry Zonka was one of the stars of those legendary Dolphins teams. And he was a big back. He stood 6'3", he weighed about 235 pounds. That made him huge for that era, the, the early to mid-70s. It's funny, man. There's something about these running backs who wore numbers in the mid-30s that we've been profiling. We profiled Earl Campbell uh, at episode 34. Christian Okoye was 35. Jerome Bettis was 36. Now we're doing Zonka at 39. All those guys, big, powerful runners with bulldozing styles. They were way more intent on running through tacklers than around them. So I, I was thinking before the show, could we make a case – that shiftier numbers where where or that shiftier runners wear numbers in the 20s while power backs rock the 30s. Think about it. Running backs who wore numbers in the 20s, Barry Sanders, Marshall Falk, Emmett Smith, Billy Sims, Shady McCoy, Christian McCaffrey, Tiki Barber, Curtis Martin, Ladanian Tomlinson. Those are all guys who were smaller and shiftier, all guys who, of course, wore numbers in the 20s. And then you have the big guys, the power backs. The guys I just mentioned, the Campbells and Okoyes and Zonka, et cetera. And then you get guys like Jim Brown, 32, Sean, Sean Alexander, Jim Taylor, Mark Van Egan. For any of you old school Raider fans, you might remember 
Mark Van Egan. They were all guys who wore numbers in the 30s. So, I, I mean, I know there's exceptions. I'm not ready to write a, a thesis on this. Uh, Derek Henry, a big power back, he wears 22. And you know, Tony Dorsett, who certainly fit the category of shiftier, smaller backs, he wore 33. But I, I do find it interesting how some numbers can represent a certain style or method. And I think that might be true of running backs. But real quick, back to Larry Zonka. For all the success Larry Zonka had in his career in Miami, some people may remember him best for a far less glorious achievement. And that was his role in the Miracle at the Meadowlands, the famous play from 1978, where the New York Giants, for whom Zonka played at the tail end of his career, led the Philadelphia Eagles 17-13 with 31 seconds remaining. They had the ball uh, at about their own 25. Philadelphia was out of timeouts. All New York had to do was fall on the ball, and the game was over. But instead, quarterback Joe Pasarczyk turned around and tried to hand the ball to Zonka on a traditional run play. And Zonka, oddly, was coming out of a three-point stance, and Pasarczyk didn't get the snap cleanly, and the exchange was muffed, and the ball ended up on the ground. And Eagles defensive back Herm Edwards scooped it up, ran it in for the game-winning score. And we've now probably seen that clip replayed by NFL Films about a thousand times, the original miracle at the Meadowlands. You know, a couple things about that play. So, so one, it wasn't quite as simple as people think. Everybody says, well, you know, hey, the Giants just should have taken a knee. Well, they never should have screwed it up. But in 1978, a quarterback was not considered down if he simply took a snap and fell to a knee. As a matter of fact, that was actually a five-yard penalty. The rule that allowed a quarterback to kneel down and for the play to be over once he did, that wasn't implemented until 1987. So in 1978, the quarterback actually had to be on the ground to be considered down. So on the play before the fumble, Pasarczyk had taken the snap and he had literally fallen to the ground. And while he was doing that, Eagles linebacker Bill Berge had shoved New York center over who, that, who fell on Pasarczyk. And the Giants weren't very deep at quarterback. And so their offensive coordinator, Bob Gibson, he didn't want Pasarczyk to get injured. So on the next play, he called the handoff to Zonka, and of course, infamy ensued. And that brings me to the next subject, which is the taking of a knee at the end of a game when the result is seemingly secured. That's a hot subject right now, given the ending of last week's Saints-Falcons game. We're going to get into that in a minute. First, though, let's look a little more closely at uh, the fateful Zonka play. Listen to this account from CBS Sports. This is the write-up of that play in the aftermath from CBS Sports. Quote, in the huddle, the Giants were incredulous when the call to run an actual play came in. Zonka begged, don't give me the ball. Other players asked Pasarczyk to change the play, but he demurred. Gibson, the offensive coordinator, had berated Pasarczyk for changing a play the week before and had threatened to have him waived if he ever did it again. And Gibson did not take the time to explain this to Pasarczyk, his concern about Pasarczyk getting injured. And as a result, the rest of the offense simply viewed Gibson's call as a power trip. And Pasarczyk, who was a second-year starting quarterback, who still had not totally proven himself, lacked the stature to prevail in this kind of dispute. Zonka claims that as he walked away from the huddle, he told Pasarczyk he would not take the ball if Pasarczyk went through with the play. However, it's not known whether the quarterback heard him. 
And head coach John McVeigh, whose headphones normally allowed him to communicate with both Pasarczyk and Gibson, were not working properly at that point. So McVeigh stated he would clearly have overruled Gibson had he heard what was coming, which he did not. Across the line of scrimmage, the Eagles had not huddled as defensive coordinator Marion Campbell called for an all-out 11-man blitz. Herman Edwards, who as a defensive back normally would have been several yards deep, was instead close to the line of scrimmage. Vermeil later said the blitz made the victory possible. The Giants wasted several seconds in the huddle in dismay over the play calling, then had to rush to the line where center Jim Clack saw the play clock winding down and took it upon himself to snap it with 31 seconds left in the game to avoid a delay of game penalty, which would have stopped the clock and cost the Giants five yards. Pasarczyk, who at the time was distracted making sure Zonka was in position, was unprepared for the snap. It struck his middle finger so hard that it bloodied the nail. Nevertheless, after a slight bobble, he held on the ball, onto the ball, but when he tried to hand it off to Zonka, the ball hit Zonka's hip and came loose. The rest, as they say, is history. So, wow. So, wow. Man, there's so much to unpack there. That is, a, that is such a dysfunctional moment. There, there's dissension in the huddle. There's, there's failures to communicate, what, whether they be coach to player or player to player. The center's worrying about a delay of game penalty when that did, didn't really matter. There's Zonka claiming that he'd refuse to take the handoff if they ran the play. It's crazy. You know, the thing I want to focus uh, is on here really is the storyline about taking a knee. You know, again, while New York wasn't yet permitted by lead rules to kneel on the ball, they obviously needed to find a way to stop to, to, to run the down without handing it off. And even if that meant Pasarczyk flopping on the ground, so be it. But there are some people in the game back then, especially, but even today, who view kneeling on the football as an unsportsmanlike act, that, that there's something that degrades the game when you take a knee. Back in October at the college level, University of Miami co coach Mario Cristobal was raked over the coals for not kneeling out the clock in a loss to Georgia Tech. Miami led 20-17 to 17 with 33 seconds left. Georgia Tech was out of timeouts. Miami could have simply taken one knee and the game would have been over. Instead, Cristobal had Miami run a play. They fumbled. Georgia Tech recovered. And the Yellow Jackets then scored as time ran out to win 23 to 20. And Cristobal, of course, was asked about it after the game. And he replied, he didn't kneel in that situation because he doesn't practice taking a knee and he doesn't run plays that he doesn't practice. And fine, really, at the end of the day, he didn't believe in taking a knee because he thought it was unsportsmanlike. And okay, if you're going to take that stance, you're going to get ripped. And Mario Cristobal was rightfully ripped in that moment. Maybe you don't feel as though that's a sportsmanlike play, but when given that option, if you eschew that option to actually run a play and then you turn it over and you lose a game as a result, you need to be prepared for the fallout. And Cristobal was, he apologized after the game and he said that in, in hindsight, he should have kneeled it out. Maybe that will change his stance on the issue of kneeling. But again, it is seen by some, both back then and today as dishonoring the spirit of the game, that the spirit of the game says you should run plays until the game is over. There are some coaches who, even if you uh, tell the referees you're going to take a knee, that will have their defense come off the ball 
as hard as they can. They're going to try to knock the center over into the quarterback and make him fumble. Referees in the NFL will now hit you with an unsportsmanlike penalty if you do that. And there's people who disagree with that. They say, how can you be hit with an unsportsmanlike penalty for playing hard to the whistle in a live moment? Really, at the high school level where I coach, if you just simply tell the referees you're going to take a knee, they will stand in between the center and the defense to prevent the defense from coming across the ball. You you basically could fumble the snap. Uh, and then, and they've prevented the defense from coming across the ball to recover. Now, I disagree with that significantly. I do believe you should be able to come across the ball. I believe the offensive line should have to block the defensive line. Um, and, I, you know, of course, I believe in protecting the quarterback. I don't think you should be able to take a cheap shot at him. I think anybody that, like, gets their linebacker, uh, you know, in a, on a running start and tries to slam into the line, I think that's unsportsmanlike. But I don't like the idea that that you're not allowed to come across the ball and actually try to play football in that instance. And so it's it's not the most controversial play in the world, obviously, taking a knee, but there are people who see it as something that dishonors the spirit of the game. Now, one person who disagreed with his coach's decision to take a knee at the end of a game this past weekend was quarterback Jameis Winston of the New Orleans Saints. So the Saints were blowing out their rivals from Atlanta, the Atlanta Falcons, 41 to 17, with less than 30 seconds remaining. They just intercepted an Atlanta pass and they'd run it back all the way to the Atlanta one yard line. Head coach Dennis Allen sent in a play with Winston, simply called victory. Victory is when you get into uh, what, what is commonly referred to as the victory formation, right? You line up all your guys across the ball. You got two guys sort of flanking the quarterback in case there's a fumble or or who are there to protect him. You got a wide receiver standing probably 10 yards behind the quarterback just in case something goes completely haywire and the defense winds up with the football that the wide receiver can be there as a safety to tackle him. Uh, and, you know, so, so New Orleans comes out in that formation. And, of course, everybody believes they're going to take a knee. And instead, Jameis Winston turns around and hands the ball to his running back, and his running back plunges into the end zone for a touchdown. And after the game, after the game, since fired, Atlanta coach Arthur Smith storms across the field, uh, confronts Dennis Allen, gives him the uh, for the all the all the lip readers out there the uh, the what the blank was that reaction, and that's BS. And I understand it, man. I understand Arthur Smith's reaction. I'm not one who worries too much about teams running up the score. I, I've, I've been on the receiving end as a head coach of teams running up the score. There's a couple of teams in our league that seem to take pride uh, in their selfish ability to, to kick teams when they're down. We played a game this year, earlier this year, against a really, really good team. They went on to be a, a, a sectional champion. And, and they had us beat up 34-6 to six on us with – less than 30 seconds left and they were in the no huddle hurrying to the line and chucking up bombs trying to put another touchdown on the board and and I don't respect that at all but that's their choice and it's not my job really to worry about what they're doing it's my job to stop them right it's my job to make sure that if we get embarrassed you know hey that's on me right i, I, I my job is to keep my team from being embarrassed and and so worry about yourself that's generally my stance on this. But when you get into the victory formation and you just basically announce to everybody you're taking a knee and then you dupe them 
by running the ball into the end zone while you're ahead by 24 points. To me, that that's problematic. And Dennis Allen explained in the aftermath at his press conference that he did not call in that play. He didn't call that play. That that, that play was changed in the huddle by the guys on the field. And he apologized. And, and he's in a bad spot there, man. I mean, Dennis, Dennis Allen looks bad no matter how you explain this away. It looks bad that his team did it. Uh, it looks bad that he has to apologize for it. It looks bad that they ran it knowing that he sent in a different play. What does that say about their respect level for him? And Jameis Winston, the quarterback uh, who, who handed the ball off there, when he was asked about it, he said, well, it was a team decision. That, that He went out there on the field and he essentially lobbied for them since they just run an interception back to the one-yard line and they wanted to get the running back into the end zone. He hadn't scored a touchdown all year long. They wanted to get him into the end zone. And, and he said that the team agreed with him and they came up with it as a team decision. I don't believe that for a second. I believe Jameis Winston, who uh, Jameis Winston might be the most, I don't want to say the word powerful, influential maybe is a better word for it. He might be the most influential backup quarterback in the NFL. He gives the pregame speeches for the Saints. He breaks them down after most of their practices. He's the backup quarterback, but he's he's also the hype man. And he's a guy who carries a lot of weight with that franchise. They listen to Jameis Winston. And so Jameis Winston, I believe, went into the huddle and basically said, you know, coach said victory, screw that, man. Right? We're getting into the end zone here. And, and, and essentially, they ran the play. It's interesting. I don't think everybody was on board. You watch that play. The guy who was assigned to stand behind Jameis Winston uh, as the safety in the victory formation is, is Taysom Hill. And Taysom Hill strikes me as a team player, a guy who, who will do whatever he can to help the team. And, and when they run the play and they get into the end zone, some of the Saints players celebrate. Taysom Hill kind of turns his head towards the sideline and shakes his head. And it does not seem at all like he's on board with that, which further leads me to believe that this was Jameis Winston going rogue. This is a bad look for Dennis Allen, man. I mean, again, I'm a high school coach. I'm not trying to at all compare high school to the pros. They're very, very different worlds, different realities, especially for a head coach. In the in the NFL, at the NFL level, Dennis Allen's making a fraction as the head coach of what some of the players on his team are making. He's fully aware that the players hold the power in the NFL. I'm a high school coach. I've been coaching at, at the high school where I am for 30 years. The kids come and go. I've been there for a long time. I mean, I, I've got an awful lot of say over what happens there. They don't have a whole lot of leeway. And I don't believe any of our players would ever pull such a stunt, partially because I think that, you know, your head coach has been there 30 years, that they respect that. And partially, they're 16 and 17-year-old kids. Most of them are not going to feel so emboldened as to act in that manner. But if they ever did, and they did something like what Winston did, I would be humiliated as a head coach. I would be humiliated. I would feel embarrassed for myself, for our team. I would feel apologetic to our administration. And I would certainly feel uh, like I disgraced the game and would offer sincere apologies to our opponents. And, you know, again, that's that's just my stance, right? Uh, how Jameis Winston feels, I don't know. He's going to be a free agent after the, the, the season. It will not shock me a little bit if that was his final snap as a New Orleans Saint. I think that he made Dennis Allen look bad. I think Dennis Allen is is in his right to, to be exceptionally angry about this. 
What Dennis Allen can do about it at this point, I don't know, maybe nothing, but it certainly shows a level of disrespect for the head coach. And again, whether that's just coming from Winston or from all the guys on the offense, I don't know. Uh, I was watching Chris Long on the, uh, the Inside the NFL show where he was talking with Ryan Clark about the issue. And Chris Long said uh, it gave off a substitute teacher vibe in terms of the way in which New Orleans disrespected their head coach. And that's, I think, a great description, a substitute teacher vibe. So long story short, uh, I, whether you agree on taking a knee or not, whether you agree that it, that it is an, a sportsmanlike or unsportsmanlike act, uh, and we certainly have a history of, of both in the NFL, to do what Winston did, I think, is disrespectful to your, to your coach, to your team, and to your opponent, uh, and I'm not a fan. All right, so we're going to take a break. On the flip side, man, let's talk some playoffs. Let's talk some, some coaching issues, and let's talk some playoffs. A lot of interesting news and a lot to forecast for the weekend. So come on back. Kevin Smith with you, man, as we were away there at the break, I just happened to check my phone and I saw the news that Nick Saban is hanging it up at the university of Alabama. Woof. That's a, that's a, a big deal. Fascinating story. I, I haven't been able to really wrap my brain around it just yet. So I'll have to collect my thoughts on that. Maybe that'll be a subject that we, we weigh in on a little bit on next week's show. But uh, that's that's kind of fascinating. Saban goes out with a uh, a loss in the set. Well, in the in the in the semifinals of the national championship playoff bracket, awesome overtime game with Alabama there or with Michigan, I should say. You kind of get the feeling if Alabama had pulled that one out, they probably would have gone on to beat Washington and win another national title for him. So anyway, Nick Saban, man, Ooh, that's big news. So we'll, we'll weigh back in on that a little bit later. Uh, Let's talk. Let's start this second segment real quick by talking about some of the the big coaching moves that have been made in the NFL. Pete Carroll out in Seattle that came as a huge surprise. We 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 talked on this show uh, last week, and Jeff Hartman and I talked about it on the whip around a couple times about you know you, you knew that there'd be four or five openings that some of them were fairly obvious: Washington and the Chargers and Carolina, the moves that were made earlier, and then you knew there'd be some surprise ones. Uh, I think Mike Vrabel in Tennessee was was surprising, but not shocking. Carroll to me was shocking. I, I, I know Pete Carroll's 72 years old, but he coaches with the boundless energy of a man half that age. And and he seems to be uh, to, to keep Seattle relevant every year. Uh, and, and that news just just broke earlier yesterday. Uh, and so, you, you know, you think about uh Maybe in the next couple of days, there'll be a little bit more clarity on why that move happened in Seattle. But it was really surprising to me. I just figured Pete Cow had a couple more years in him and, and all seemed to be well up there in the Pacific Northwest. It was disappointing that Seattle didn't make the playoffs this, this season. Uh, but I don't think that that was the reason. I think that it may have factored into it a little bit, but there seemed to be some bigger reasons there. The one I'm really interested in is what happened in Tennessee. And so I'm going to talk about that for a minute, and then we'll, and then we'll look a little bit at the playoff picture. 
What, what happened in Tennessee with Mike Vrabel is kind of fascinating. Mike Vrabel was the, was the NFL coach of the year in 2021. Uh, I mean, he had, he put together a, a three-year run there, 2019 through 2021, that was as good as anybody's in football. I mean, obviously, they, they didn't win a Super Bowl, but they were a darn good playoff contending team uh, with a power run game and uh, an identity that really sort of matched Mike Vrabel's personality. And granted, in the last 24 games, the Titans have gone 6-18, and 18, and they now seem to be a team clinging to that identity without the ability to execute it anymore. I mean, they, they were built around a devastating offensive line and, and the power run game of Derrick Henry. And Derrick Henry can still run the ball. I mean, he finished in the top five in the NFL in rushing this year. But the line is bad. The quarterback play is not there. Ryan Tannehill has, has you know, his best days are behind him. And Will Levis has a ways to, uh, ways to go. And the defense is really struggling. I mean, they've got issues in Tennessee, no doubt. But, but – it's interesting because what you read about that firing there suggests that it was less about the result on the field and perhaps more about uh, Vrabel not sharing the vision for the future of the franchise that management had. And so, you know, I mean, there are some stories there about uh, the general manager, Rand Carthon, um, and the owner, Amy Adams Strunk, having different perspectives really on, on where Tennessee should move. Uh, it feels as though Vrabel, who sometimes kind of gave off the vibe that he didn't suffer the little people. I mean, <laughs> every once in a while you would catch Mike Vrabel with that sort of expression, like, you know, like get away from me, dude, or buzz off. Or he, he seems to be a, the kind of guy who uh, might be annoyed by non-football people trying to tell him what to do. And obviously that seems to have rubbed some people the wrong way. Uh, his vision for the team was really rooted in an attempt over the last couple of years to try to win. Now it seems as though ownership wanted to move on that. They didn't believe that they didn't believe that Tannehill was the answer. They'd made a huge mistake when uh, they drafted uh, the Willis kid out of Liberty and that didn't pan out. And then they, they doubled down by drafting Will Levis it seems as though Rand Carthon wanted Levis to play earlier, that Vrabel lobbied for Tannehill because he believed that Tannehill could keep them competitive. Long story short, when, when you're not winning games, you need to be in lockstep with ownership to keep your job. That, that's why maybe this shouldn't be so surprising. Like I think back to my own uh, job here at, at Ocean City. And again, I, I always qualify this by saying I'm not, I will never try to compare high school literally compare high school to the NFL, very, very different circumstances, but there are some similarities. And, and one of the things is this, right? Again, if you're not winning games, you need to be doing all the other things, right? So for example, when I got the head coaching job, our school was coming off of back-to-back three and seven seasons. We weren't a very good program. We hadn't won a playoff game in about 10 years. And there, there was an understanding there that, that we wouldn't be good right away. And, and we weren't. My first year, we went three and seven again, making it three straight three and seven seasons. And then we, then we improved to four and six the next year and uh, we're four and six again after that. And, but then it, start, it's, it slowly started to, to turn around. But the one thing that I was very careful of, I got some really good advice from some people who I have a lot of respect for. And they said, listen, 
make sure that you're doing the little things right. And what, and what does that mean at the high school level? That means make sure your kids are behaving themselves in the hallways. Make sure that when they're walking around with their football shirts on, that, that they're representing the program well in the community, in the school, et cetera. If, if your kids are up on the boardwalk getting into fights, you got problems. If your kids are, are conducting themselves poorly on the field, lots of unsportsmanlike penalties, poor, poor uh, camaraderie as a team, lots of dissension between the parents and the coaches. If you're doing all those things wrong and you're not winning games, you're going to get fired. You have to have a shared vision with the people who employ you if the success is not coming on the field. And it seems like Mike Vrabel did not have that same shared vision with the ownership group and the management in Tennessee, and he's out. And that's really interesting, man, because I have a ton of respect for Mike Vrabel. I think he's a tremendous head coach. I think he'll be snapped up fairly quickly because what he did in Tennessee, the way he built that team, I think is a, a model that that there will be franchises out there who may want to emulate. To, uh, if you don't think that you have the most talented roster, but you and you believe in building from inside out, Mike Vrabel could be a really good coach for you. So there will be a lot more commentary on the coaching storylines as we go. Let's turn our attention real quick to the NFL playoffs. They kick off on Saturday. The first game at 4.30 on Saturday is Browns at Texans. Joe Flacco, the past versus the future. Joe Flacco against C.J. Stroud. That's going to be a fascinating matchup. There really are fascinating matchups all throughout the first round of the playoffs. Uh, Browns at Texans. I'm really eager to see if Houston can win this playoff game because Cleveland's playing really good football. They rested a bunch of their starters in week 18. They're going to be fresh, as fresh as you can be for a team that suffered some devastating losses, particularly on the offensive side of the ball. And you got two of maybe the most compelling stories in the NFL this year at the quarterback position. C.J. Stroud, the rookie of the year, and Joe Flacco, maybe the sample size will be too small for him to formally win the award, but a guy who certainly over the last half of the season is the comeback player of the year. 38-year-old against a 22-year-old. It's going to be a really, really interesting matchup down there. I'm definitely going to watch that. I hope to watch the next game, but it's on freaking Peacock. And I don't even know if I got the streaming service, to be quite honest with you. Dolphins at Chiefs in a game in Kansas City where the wind chill is supposed to be somewhere between zero and minus 15 degrees. That is insane. And now you're going to take the Miami Dolphins, the warm weather Dolphins, with their high flying, sling the ball around offense, and you're going to send them into that situation. What a costly loss for the Dolphins on Sunday night at home to the Buffalo Bills when they had a chance to wrap up the number two seed and they couldn't get it done. And because they couldn't get it done, they won't get a home playoff game and they have to go into a miserable frozen hell in Kansas City. Uh, I really look for the Chiefs to dominate that football game. I just don't think Miami's built for that. On Sunday, Steelers at Bills in another game where the weather conditions will be an issue. The weather forecast in Buffalo is calling for steady winds of around 30 miles an hour with gusts up into the 50s, gusts into the 50s. Good luck throwing the ball in those conditions. It's going to be in the 30s, snow flurries in the forecast. Uh, the Steelers have averaged over 150 yards rushing over the last three games, 157 yards to be exact, rushing over the last three games. They're running the ball really well. 
they do some things offensively that could give the Bills trouble in the run game. Pittsburgh's got a pretty good power run game right now. Buffalo's not the biggest defense up front. If the Steelers can control the football and keep Buffalo on the sideline, and then that that wind can maybe wreak havoc a little bit with Buffalo's passing game, Pittsburgh could give them a game. So Buffalo is a 10-point favorite there. Uh, I don't know, man. I, that, you know, I will not be shocked. I know this is the homer in me, but I won't be shocked if the Steelers win it, uh, you know, much less cover it. And then you have at 4.30 on Sunday, Packers at Cowboys, a marquee matchup of two of the most recognizable franchises in the NFL. Uh, that's going to be a really good game. We'll see if Dallas can can win one and, you know, get to the second round. They've only won four playoff games since they won their last Super Bowl in 1995. That's hard to believe. But the nightcap on Sunday night, for me, that's going to be the game of the weekend. Rams at the Lions. Just a great storyline there. Everybody who jokes around the NFL uh, jokes about the NFL script writers. Well, the script writers, you know, the, the, the conspiracy theorists who say the league is fixed. The script writers got this one right, sending Matthew Stafford back to Detroit. Jared Goff was being interviewed the other day. He said he still wears a chip on his shoulder about that trade because the Rams basically gave up on him uh, and decided to trade him for what they thought was a better model. So, so one guy coming back with an awful lot of nostalgia, another guy in what's now his home with a chip on his shoulder as his former team comes in. The Lions trying to win their first playoff game since 1991. Man, there's a lot of fascinating stuff going on there. I can't wait to watch that one Sunday night. And then Monday night, Eagles against Buccaneers. My gosh, what is going on with the Philadelphia Eagles? Oh, you know, I live close to Philadelphia and uh, surrounded by Eagles fans. And my gosh, the talk radio a year ago, not even a year ago, heck, at midseason, when the Eagles were on on their way to a 10-1 start, you had you had people calling in to the talk radio locally. They wanted to build a statue of Nick Sariani outside the link. And now you got guys who want him fired. And so it's amazing how quickly the fortunes have changed in Philadelphia. The Eagles started 10-1. Now they're 11-6 and, and on the road uh, going down to Tampa. With the gunslinger and Baker Mayfield, who, you know, Baker Mayfield could throw four interceptions in that game and look horrible, or he could light it up, man, and, and look like Tom Brady in his prime. You just don't know. And that's a little bit of a scary matchup for Philadelphia. If the Eagles win, then they probably have to go out to San Francisco, and that's no prize either. So Philly uh, played themselves into a bit of a hole here in these playoffs. It'll be interesting to see if they can play themselves out. So, Wild card playoffs kicking off this weekend. Lots of coaching questions based on some of the, the the actions or activities of the last couple of days. It's really a fascinating time in the NFL. This weekend and next weekend, the divisional round, are my two favorite weekends on, on the NFL calendar. Some of the best football of the season. Can't wait to watch it all. So that that's our episode, episode 39 of the call sheet, talking kneel down sportsmanship coaching playoffs so much going on here so hope everybody has a great weekend and we will catch you next week for episode number 40 take care everybody 